No, I think we're fine. Well, I did did have this story. So it is recording right now. Um, So this this came up on the news, I think, was it last last month? So uh, in November. And it's uh, the ABC's uh, news on uh, child care center owners charged with fraudulently claiming millions in subsidies, stimulus payments, 28th of November, 2020. Mm -hmm. And it's about, uh, okay, here. A Melbourne couple has been accused of registering phantom children at a childcare center they operate in order to claim millions of dollars in government payments they're not entitled to. Australian Federal Police have charged Ula Yuda, 42, and Amjad Shihada, 47, both from Doncaster East, with serious fraud. They face up to 10 years in prison if convicted. Three other people, including two childcare educators, have also been charged with serious fraud in the wake of AFP officers conducting raids on several properties in Victoria and New South Wales. Because AFP Commander Todd Hunter says investigators spoke to more than 70 educators and parents during the course of the investigation, it was likely more people would be charged. He says, It is alleged that registered provider of the Melbourne family daycare business, together with a number of co-accused, defrauded the Commonwealth-funded childcare subsidy payments by registering children who did not attend childcare to make false claims, he said. Phantom children, if you will. Uh, so the That's alleged, a new one. <laughs> the alleged fraud, which <laughs> authorities say raked in $15 million, include exaggerating the hours some children attended childcare or before and after school care. You know, I think it was... I think was it Victoria, New South Wales, or, or was it the federal government? Yeah. I think during the peak of COVID or maybe just before the few months, you know, yeah. before start of lockdown said, yeah. we're going to make childcare free for everyone. Okay. Right? Yeah. And what do you think is going to happen um, if you don't have the regulators in there yep. or, or you have like a, you a, don't, a you policy don't, which can easily... Well, you don't have... You don't, you don't... You don't have... <laughs> Anyone keeping an eye on what money is being spent where is the money being spent appropriately. It's yeah. just money is free, off it goes. Yeah. And you have people rotting the system. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's 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 base human nature. It's base human nature, really, because well, yeah. they'll look at it, they will look at it and go, well, there's money sitting on the table. Why don't I, like, no one's looking, I'll just take it. Yeah, well, everyone's too focused on, you know, COVID, right? Now. Yeah, exactly, so yeah. Like, it's like, oh, they won't miss, an, they, they won't miss $15 million. Nah, never mind. But I was like... Oh, the audacity of it. But, you know, when you make stuff free, yes, it's, it's easily... You lose accountability. Well, you lose accountability. And people also... It's very, it, I, it's a very different story if someone loan someone I know or and trust loans me money. Yeah. I feel a personal uh, a level of personal obligation that I I am now indebted to them mm. that I owe them to do the right thing and pay them back for the generosity they've given me right yeah when the government does it and it's a it's a faceless pers- uh, entity that you don't have a personal connection with there's you don't have the that level of obligation you don't have the I would argue the shame of oh, uh, or yeah, you you don't you don't have that uh, the same justification that you should be paying that money back or making good on the money that you've been given. Hmm. I just think it's just open to fraud when you have blanket 
let's make things free. Yeah. Pol- oh, it makes it makes it easier. It's like this huge bucket of money, and let's just get it out there. Yeah. Uh, I like the other bit. Says the AFP alleges the couple used a stimulus money to fund a lavish lifestyle that included overseas holidays. Luxury cars and extensive property portfolio. This during, is Victoria. I was like, during COVID? I was like, how, how does this work, this overseas holiday? Like, I know there's planes going back and forth, but it's like, mm. you really have to be essential to go, yeah. to go overseas. Anyway. Well. We're back on the show with myself, Johnny, and Pat. How are you going? Oh, doing pre- doing pretty good for this evening. How are you doing, Johnny? Yeah, good. All right. So, uh, story intro. So, another one. So, Millionaire tells millennials, if you want a house, stop buying avocado toast. 16th of May, 2017, on, on The Guardian. Australian real estate mogul Tim Gurner advised young people to solve their housing woes by putting their 22-a-pop toast toward a deposit instead. Australian millionaire and real estate mogul has advised for millennials struggling to purchase a home. Stop buying avocado toast. Tim Gurner, a luxury property developer in Melbourne, responsible for over 3.8 billion projects, is facing heat for comments he made on 60 Minutes in Australia implying that young people can't afford to buy property because they're wasting money on fancy toast and overpriced coffee. He says, When I was trying to buy my first home, I wasn't buying smashed avocado for $19 and four coffees at $4 each, he said. We're at a point now where the expectation of younger people are very, very high. He added, We're coming into a new reality where a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just a reality. Asked if he believes young people will never own a home, he responded, Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on smashed avocados and coffees and not working, of course. Uh, is not the first to suggest that young people's love of avocado toast was making it harder for them to buy homes. Mm. Demographer Bernard Salt wrote in The Australian last year that if young people stopped, getting, stopped going to hipster cafes, they could purchase property. He wrote, I have seen young people order smashed avocado with crumbled feta on five-grain toasted bread at $22 a pop and more. I can afford to eat this for lunch because I am middle-aged and have raised my family. But how can young people afford to eat like this? Shouldn't they be economizing by eating at home? How often are they eating out? $22 several times a week could go towards a deposit on a house. Some compared Gurner's comments to the recent controversial remarks of U.S. Congressman Jason Chavetz, who suggested people struggling to afford health insurance should stop buying smartphones. Maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest in their own health care, he said. Well, what's your reaction to that, Pat? What's my reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, tw- okay, Joe, so $20, $20 of toast, okay. Um, yeah. I just thought, you know, the, if, if it's out there, there's some truth. Oh, there, yeah. If, this is, if it's on the menu in the, yes. in the, in the well, cafe, I, Mel- in cafe in Melbourne, oh, then someone's buying it. Yeah, well, I, I, I remember when, uh, the, when the cost of avocado on toast spiked because this massive shipment, I think it was in, um, I think it was in the States, and yeah. this massive shipment of avocados uh, de- uh, fell, well, 
the car or the truck rather flipped and uh all got the entire shipment got scattered and as a result the $22 in toes jumped up to $30 in toes $30 a pop it's kind of crazy yeah I'm not sure like is it a fair assessment of an entire generation by just labeling that thing saying hey you guys are spending too much on breakfast when you can probably get it cheaper I think I think there's merit to be had in the argument, but I think that the argument itself, the way it's been, the way the phrase has been coined is a bit unhelpful mm. because what it does is it does pit the, essentially what's perceived as the haves versus the have-nots. The wealth, the older, wealthier, more prosperous generation versus the, uh, the younger up-and-coming generation that is looking at them, looking at the older generation going, I can't have what you have right now. And there's that friction. So I think that it's not a helpful argument, but I think there is a kernel of truth there. So maybe we can unpack that this this evening. Okay, so what do you disagree with particularly? Oh, I I think I think what I disagree with is probably that the it's pitting the two generations against or in this case, young generation versus old generation against each other and one the older generation is looking down and pointing and blaming the younger generation and the younger generation is then uh angrily yelling back at the older generation so it's not we're not actually looking to looking to identify the problem the core problem that's causing some of these issues and then finding some and working together to find solutions mm. yeah i'm thinking like is it can you if he actually did his advice can you still afford to buy a house as a first timer it's difficult it's it it's very difficult but i and i would be tempted to say yes it is possible but it's it's very tricky and it does it does require a bit of luck as well hmm. i'm thinking like, i'm trying to do mental math 40 dollars a day 40 times Right. Five twenty, sorry, forty-five times five, two hundred. Mm. Um, two hundred times four, yeah. eight hundred. Well, it's, it's, well, it's not. It's not. Well, it's not. It's not. It's not avocado on toast in isolation. It's more indicative of our, how the younger generation, how millennials, what our approach is to spending our money and how we spend our money. Yeah. Where if I'll spend twenty dollars on twenty dollars for breakfast every single day. You add that on top of what, how else I'm spending the rest of my money. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, I'm going to have an overseas holiday. I'm going to have Netflix. I'm going to buy the next iPhone when it comes out. These different ways that I spend my money, it's indicative of a certain pattern that um, I think that we're, that we're, that we as a community, as a culture, we're looking at this and recognizing a trend. And we've probably rightfully identified going, well, Money is not being spent in the same manner as it was with the baby boomers and Gen X. Something has changed, but blame, but by labeling a labeling millennials and blaming them, going you just don't know how to spend how to uh, spend money or save money appropriately, it isn't really helpful. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I've tried to dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, is it is what he's saying true? Like you know. Mm. Are millennials and the younger generation just spending lavishly on breakfast mm. and coffee every day, and therefore that's cutting into their 
money that they can mm. save and set aside to make a deposit. Yeah. Right. So this is Longitudinal Study of Australian Children, LSAC, Annual Statistical Report 2018. So it's chapter eight, Shop or Save, How Teens Manage Their Money by Warren Andalon Gasser of the Australian Institute of Family Studies. It says, at age 16 and 17, most study teenagers were still in secondary school and almost all were still living in their parents' home. While some 16 or 17-year-olds have some part-time jobs, the majority are likely to rely on their parents for everyday living expenses. At ages 16 to 17, some teens may save for major purchases such as a car or overseas travel, while others may prefer to spend on present-focused things such as clothes, phones, technology, games, or sports, and social activities. LSAC data showed that while some 16- to 17-year-olds were more cautious with their money than others, most had a reasonably cautious style towards money management. For example, around 1 in 7 16- to 17-year-olds responded either quite a lot or very much to the statement, spend, spend, spend is a phrase that applies to me, while almost 44% responded not at all. More boys than girls disagreed with this statement with two out of five girls and three out of boys saying that it did not apply to them. Sorry, what didn't apply to them? Uh, spend, spend, spend is a uh, phrase that applies to me. So uh, do you have the chart on you? So I, yes. I took an extract. Oh, I yeah. yeah. So the, la- the last bit, in so figure 8.1, mm. they did a survey and of the, the kids, yeah. right? And you can see spend, spend, spend is a phrase that applies to me. And there's other bits like, you know, I look ahead, and plan for my future financially. Yeah, I'm very easy to spend money. Mm. Um, I'm cautious with my money and try to avoid getting to debt and as much as possible. And yeah. uh, it goes, you know, how does that phrase apply to you? It goes, not not at all, mm. a little, somewhat, quite a lot, and very much. Yeah. So you know, a lot of guys you can see there. It's, it's colored and it's online. So if, for the listeners, you can just look it up on web. Yeah. LSAAC, 2018. And there's a lot of people who would say, I am very cautious with my money and I like to save. But there's also, you know, I am present focused and financially like to live for today. So I'm living for today's mm. and I'll spend my money according for today. Yeah. So what's what's the chunk that agrees with this? Or very, it's a, it goes from agree to very much agree. Mm. And it's like what? 18 plus 7 plus 34, so 25 uh, 59% yeah. would agree with I live for today, today yeah. the moment. Yep. That's quite a lot. That's like over half. Yeah. And the other bit. So spend, spend, spend is a phrase that applies to me. So what's that? 15 plus 8 plus 7. So 15 plus 15, 30. Mm. 30%. That's, that's still quite a significant amount of the yeah. population that says, you know, I associate with this phrase that I like to spend, yeah. spend, spend. Well, out of all of these questions, though, the spend 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 is a phrase that applies to me that that's the only question i would say out of here that would trigger or incite an emotional response in the test in the person being asked the question because that all the rest all the rest of them are more i would i i look at them at least and go they're more uh surface level questions yeah this one gets to the the last one Spend, spend, spend gets to the core of who I am as a person. So I'd say if I like if I'm if I'm responding to this, it makes me sound like I'm a bit of a bit of a fool if I say yes to that. 
Yeah. So a lot, I, I can understand why a lot of a lot of the responders went, "No, that doesn't apply to me." You know, for those who are honest, say, you know what, thirty percent of the population. Yeah. So thirty percent of the sixteen to seventeen year olds mm. surveyed believe that. Yeah. So I'll just continue. It goes yeah. over forty percent say they find it very easy to spend their money. Uh, either quite a lot or very much. Mm. A high percentage of girls and boys said they found it very easy to spend their money. 18% of boys and 23% of girls responded very much to the statement. Uh, while there were differences in boys' and girls' response to the mm. statements about spending habits, with girls having a slightly higher preference for spending, there were no significant differences in boys' and girls' responses to the statements about planning for the future financially, saving money, and avoiding debt. Yeah. So... Uh, I'll, I'll go off with a few more takeaway points from the study, which was um, parents play a key role in, you know, shaping the habits, the saving habits, Absolutely. as well as spending habits of young people. Absolutely, mine did. <laughs> yeah. What, what happened to you? Oh, we had we had a uh, paper budget, but we, we were given pocket money when we got about I don't know, maybe grade two or three mm. thereabouts, and we get we get a small bit of pocket money in coins. Yeah. And we were then given a paper book where we had to note down what we were given and then note down how we divvied it up into saving, into spending, and uh, also um, donation as well mm. into those three into those three buckets. And I, th- I think back in the day, back, back then I was given maybe about $5 a week, something like that. So $2 would go to saving, $2 would go to spend, and one to donation. Something like that. <laughs> do, do they uh, ever introduce you to the tax? No, I think that, I, I think that came later after I got my part time part time job. Give me money, pretty much. <laughs> you want aircon? Give me money. Yeah. Oh. Um. You, oh. You. Mean, oh. You mean room, room and board? Yes. Yeah, so I eventually ran into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we. No, my, my parents were really good, but yeah. yeah. No, we, I eventually. I. I did pay pay my um pay my fair share. Yeah. Uh. Funny actually, I think I got one from the ASIC. Mm. So, uh, studies in twenty nineteen saying you know. They had uh, start kids early yeah. by giving good habits. So they said, yeah, they had the three jars: spend, mm-hmm. save, and donate. Don't know about the tax bit, though. That that's that's we'll one add, thing that's missing. We'll, yeah. we'll we'll add that eventually. Yeah. Well, let kids be kids. <laughs> nah, nah, it's a fun have yeah. tax. Give it back to the parents. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's like you know, one in seven people have the spend, spend, spend perspective. Mm. That's a bit of a concern. Yeah. So you know, when we go back to the original statement. Mm. You know, maybe it's not the whole generation that's spending avocado toast. Yeah. But, you know, but there's enough. There's enough. There's enough to make a serious trend. Yeah. And a good, I think it does cause a, somewhat of a serious problem as well. Hmm. I think it's interesting, though, that just as an, as an aside, is it's taking us longer to grow up, to mature. We're take, we're spe- it's taking us longer to work. It's taking us till. Six, but sometimes sixteen, but more often eighteen, to get to start working, it's taking us longer to leave home. Yeah. Uh, where whether we are renting or whether we're out of living on our own, being independent, self sufficient, and it's also taking us longer. I think in some cases to find direction and purpose. We've and we've spoken about that in some of our previous conversations. Yeah. Of finding direction, purpose, meaning in our lives. It's taking us longer to find these things. So where we, we, I'm thinking back to go back a couple hundred years where you would have 12 and 13 year olds working in 
what we'd probably say is today we would go these are subpar living conditions but they were working earning a wage providing for uh, or helping to provide for their household because they didn't have a choice they had to do it but now you've got 18 year olds who aren't Mm. i think that's an interesting progression or trend where it where as a society we're expecting people to be uh to take responsibility yeah at a much older age yeah so we're treating treating people as children much much longer mm-hmm. i wonder if that's potentially an aspect here that's contributing towards oh you don't have to take responsibility because imagine if a 12 if well let, let, let's bump the age up a little bit let's say let's say a 14 year old starts working a part-time job and they're earning money mm-hmm. right their capacity to save up and have and have enough money for a deposit for their first house would be very very different from someone who just started work at eight at 17 18 maybe 20 mm. Mm. yeah i see your point it's qualifications we've extended you know for some people who want who are pushed or even have, want to go to university yeah that's another four years after leaving yes. high school. Yeah, that was the, that was then, longer in school. And then, well, not only that, we saddle you with a debt. Yes. So what's a heck step or high school, you know, student loans? Thing. 30, 30, 40K. So yeah, 30, 40K. So you got to fix that one first before yep. you got your house, right? Yeah. Well, generally. <laughs> well, well, the one benefit of the system we have at the moment, and, I, and I've argued for a number of years that the heck system is a house of cards where it's not sustainable in the long term it'll it's only we're only going to have us now have enough money where you can only put so many of your citizens into government debt uh where the government will then go well we can't keep sustaining that yeah but uh the one good thing about the system the way it's working right now is it is it's relatively interest free so the government isn't it, they take a bit of it out of your way of my wage because I'm I'm above the earning threshold mm. Uh, they take a bit of that every week to pay off the loan, but there is no interest. Yeah. There is inflation, mind you. I noticed that um, I chipped away at about two or $3,000 over the financial year, and uh, inflation caught up with me, and I put a uh, debit of uh, about one and a half, two grand on top of it. So, so you won. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yes. I, I did it, did I, it cancel that then, the, the previous pr- years? It pretty much did, actually. I was quite miffed about that one, actually, but... Oh. Once you re- once I realized okay that's the, that's the reality of what that's the deal I did I've okay I've got to buckle down and figure out how to get rid of it so there's a challenge I've and I've I've got to figure out how to how to go overcome it pretty much a lot of scratchies <laughs> don't tell anyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that there that that aspect of we are expecting people our age and and our and the next and the younger generation going coming through the wings to mature much later mm. i think that that's contributing in part to the problem and i don't think i think i don't think that this is there's one problem here that we fix this one problem it'll all get better there's yeah. multiple problems yeah. here but i think that's an interesting ass element to it all right anyway, so continue on i'll crack on with the next bit which yeah, is okay well if this is the attitudes, which is what we just talked about, then what are they actually spending the money on? Mm. So here's a 2008 National Youth Affairs Research Scheme by the Commonwealth of Australia. So they surveyed 616 youths, and mm. at the time of the survey, so 26% were in debt at the time of the survey, 36% have been in debt, but not now, 38% have never been in debt. It's pretty good. Yeah. 
And then, okay, so let's so, do what do they actually owe? So the average amount owing were $296 to $315 for girls and $271 for boys. The amount owing increased markedly at age 15 years from an average of $98 at age 14 to $285 at age 15. $339 at age 16 and $524 at age 17. I, I guess, you know, when you get older, you have more spending capacity and more credit. Yeah. You borrow more, right? Uh, two things should be noted from these about these uh, figures. So they exclude two cases, a 16-year-old boy with a $27,300 mm. bank loan. Too, too, too much Fortnite? I don't know. <laughs> Again. Is that a car? Maybe it's a car. It, it, sorry, I will say that that was an unproductive role. Side argument on my part. Uh, and a 17-year-old boy with a $15,640 bank loan. So yeah. either, they're either, you know, the next Bill Gates trying to set up the next business or they bought themselves a, yeah. uh, a Ford or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it said these figures are only for 161 young people currently in debt. If you yeah. take the average across all young people, the figures come out $77 average debt, mm. $92 for, bo- for girls, Sixty-one dollars for boys. Yeah, is there is there a legal cutoff? I don't know. Is there a legal cutoff age for getting a credit card? I think start off early, isn't it? Like I think sixteen-year-olds have can get credit cards. I have no idea. I'm just curious if it because obviously this data uh, sample here cuts off at eighteen years. I'm wondering if you hit the eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one to I'll say to twenty-four, what happens to that debt level? Because it's it's increasing every year. As older you go. The amount of cumulative debt is increasing, which does make sense. We're dealing yeah. we're dealing with older people who are now taking on more financial, uh, different financial things. Yeah. But I'm wondering when you introduce credit cards to the mix, is there a spike? Probably. Like, I mean, we're looking at what two digit, three digit figures. Yeah. So it's not too bad. Uh, I don't know about those two boys who took out <laughs> massive five figure loans. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, girls spend more. To- more money than boys. That's what mm. this uh, study says. As you get older, you're likely to commit large debt. Yeah. But, you know, not all debt, I, I guess, is bad. No. If it's a business taking a loan to purchase capital. Yeah. But I don't know about these kids here. Like, Again, they, hey, give them credit. It might be that it's the next Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. It could be. All right. So I'll actually go into the study. and says, the most common items that young people reported spending their own money on were food and beverages at 66%. Clothes and accessories at fifty four percent, CDs, DVDs, and games. So I guess it's like you know two thousand eight, right? Fifty one percent mobile phones, forty seven percent, and going out forty three percent, fifteen percent shop online with their own money. Never mind, no Bill Gates is here. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, I don't know. That's maybe that's a lot of. Yeah. I still don't know what the twenty seven thousand. Uh, I told you it's Fortnite. Yeah, okay, Fortnite. <laughs> Great. Granted, two thousand eight. <laughs> two thousand eight. Angry Birds, maybe. So it was a big deal. Like, there's a good majority that will learn to save and take some money, yeah. take some amount of debt, uh, while there's a proportion of people who spend frivolously, right? Yeah. So I just wanted to deal with the common misconceptions is that, mm. you know, some people will try and save and save most of them of their life and will still be priced out of the housing market. Yeah. I, I guess the common cry I hear is like, we need the government to fix the housing to, market, uh, yeah. right? Okay. Get involved, save yeah. me, help me out, fix, you know, get. You know, yeah. there's, there's greedy banks yeah. and there's greedy housing owners yeah. or builders yeah. that keep pricing this yeah. thing out. Here's the question. What house are you trying to buy? First cab out of the rank. Mm. The desire is that I want to own my own home. Okay, that's a very commendable goal 
to have, what house are you trying to buy? Are you trying to buy an inner city apartment in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane? Because if you are, that's four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars bare minimum, a million dollars potentially in some suburbs. Yeah. Or are you looking at a small house or townhouse in the outer suburbs where it's out further away from the city, where it could be anywhere between two hundred and fifty, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. What what are you what are you actually trying what are you actually trying to buy here? Yeah. Because I'm... I can say I want my first car and I can go and get a Ford Falcon or I can go and get a Lamborghini. Yes. They're both my first car, but one costs more. And how do I pay for the Lamborghini? I take a massive loan. Yep. And put on credit, which yep. I'll be enslaved for pretty much the rest pretty, of my life. Pretty much, yeah. Unless I win the lottery yeah. or some, you know, angel yeah. gives me money yeah. to well, pay if it off. You ta- I, think, I think if we take the analogy of the car, it's probably easy to wrap, at least it's easy for me, for me to wrap my head around. If my first car is a Ford, is a Ford Falcon, say that, and I'm not a car person, by the way, so uh, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here with this analogy, but I take take the Ford Falcon and I'm then able to use that and eventually trade it up for a slightly better car. I use that. I'm able to trade up for a slightly better car. So you won't be able to trade it off. It's a Ford, man. I know. <laughs> It'll just and, devalue. As I, as I said, I'm not a car person. Give me some slack. But no. chances go at the end of the day, I'm not go- probably not going to be able to trade my way up to a Lamborghini. But the principle, though, is that I can trade myself up to a better car. Bit by bit by bit. Yeah. So, and again, the fact that, frankly, Lamborghini, unattainable goal. We really shouldn't, that shouldn't be something we should aim be aiming for. But that principle of you start off small within your means and you can climb the ladder and work your way up. Yeah. That's something I think that often is missed in the general debate of young people can't afford their their own home what home are we trying what what house houses are we trying to buy here yeah all right anyway so, no more car analogies for me for the rest of the evening how's that sound probably kia instead of uh, afford maybe um, note yourself kia instead of afford. <laughs> <laughs> all right so what's the other bit i want to look at so if so we looked at saving habits. So what's the actual price of housing and mm-hmm. is, is it something that's out of reach? So I looked at the long-run trends in housing price growth by Kohler and Murray, 2015 by the Reserve Bank of Australia Bulletin. And you know, there's a graph there. I probably won't describe it. I would say it's sort of going up and down. There's a massive spike in 1980, 1988. Um, housing price growth. And there was a massive spike in the 1988. Then it went up in the 2000s. It, it's, so there's what, no real average there. It's all sort of mm, going up and down. Well, it's the property market ebbing and flowing. But um, what happened in 1988? What, what caused the spike? Do I we know? I believe that's one of the first times you introduced first homeowner grants. Right, okay. But that's when I look at the other study, which I'll go on later on. Yeah. But I, I'm not particularly sure by 1988. Mm. Uh, could be a crash. Yep. Actually, was it the crash? Um, I'll look it up later on. But I yeah. believe that was when Reagan was in and there was the massive recession. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, so I'll read what it says on this paper. Mm-hmm. It says, over the past 30 years, Australian housing prices have increased on an average 7.25% per year and over the inflation targeting period by around 7% per year. However, these averages mask three distinct periods. During the 1980s, annual house 
housing price inflation was high, at nearly 10% on average, but so too was general price inflation. In real terms, housing price inflation during the 1980s was, was relatively low, at 1.4% per annum, compared with 4.5% during a period from 1990 to mid-2000s and 2.5% over the past decade. Then the next uh, period, the 1990s until the mid-2000s were marked by quite high housing price inflation of 7.2% per annum on average in nominal terms. And then the recent decade, so annual nominal housing price inflation over the past decade was lower than either of these periods at a little over 5% on average. So you had the early period, the 80s to the 90s was, uh, was quite high. Then 2000s uh, is a bit lower, and then the recent one is even lower than that. Mm. But the next chart is the year versus the index. So inflation, housing prices, and quality on a logarithmic scale from June 1986 to 2015. And there's there's a few lines there. So it goes headline CPI, consumer price index, So and then new dwelling cost inflation, value of new dwellings and housing prices. So CPI, you know, consumer price index is steady, but in all the lines above it, inflation, housing, and then the actual value of the new dwelling, and then also the, ver- the actual house pricing. So I'll say again. Uh, so the, the lines above it. So how much uh, the cost inflates, mm. the actual value of your house, and then the actual price these are way above CPI, right? So you, yeah. you normally expect something that it would follow CPI. Mm. But something has happened in 2000s that drove housing prices way above CPI. So what you would usually can afford to buy from your income. So it says, over the past 20 years, general price inflation was low and stable, consistent with the inflation target of 2 to 3% per annum which was introduced in the early 1990s. Housing price growth, however, has outstripped the rate of inflation in other prices in the economy, including inflation of the, of the, in the cost of new dwellings. You know, items would increase in price over time due to inflation. Housing prices, something has gone seriously wrong, wrong there yeah. that is soaring way past inflation. Some of the stuff that they try to argue that might explain this is, you know, is it possible that the... Is improvement in quality of housing. Mm. You know, we're getting aircon, we're getting more floor space, uh, but it still counts to that. Um, so it's it's not the quality of housing. There's something else that's going on. And it says here, this gap between housing prices and different measures of the cost of new housing suggests that over the past 25 years, factors have been at work that have increased demand for housing relative to additions in housing supply including in well-located and most desirable locations, and by more than had been the case during the 1980s. The remainder of this section reviews some of the drivers that may help to explain relatively strong demand growth for housing in the past two decades or so. One of factors such as financial deregulation and the shift in the early 1990s to an environment of low and stable inflation, long-term determinants such as population growth and cyclical factors that have contributed to housing price growth. So he's going, what are these factors are driving at the price of housing beyond normal inflation of normal CPI? 
So it says deregulation of financial sector of the, the borrowing and lending practices, right? So uh, they deregulated and they've let the banks have more control on what they want to do. You're now able to increase your household debt. You're actually borrowing more. Your, your borrow power has increased. So now you can actually compete with yeah. other people yeah. to buy more expensive houses, mm. things that will be normally out of your reach. Yeah. The increase in house house value versus income. The houses that we buy are more and more expensive and more valuable, mm. right? So we're aiming for those high-value properties. Yeah. They noted that there was a low population natural growth. So there's, you know, Australia hasn't really sort of reached that surge point. Yeah. Of like you know singularity or the logarithmic um you know the kick the hockey yep. hockey um or the hockey stick yep. the shape of the graph where it's like you know, exponentially increase it's yep. it's it's relatively stable with a yeah. we're not naturally producing more uh, people Pretty much what um mother father and one and a half kids yeah. or two and a half kids I can't remember what the expression is but yeah so what is actually others was also noted is that there's a high population growth by immigration in two thousands yeah. So that is another bunch of consumers that you need to compete entering, with. Who are entering the market. Yeah, and now increasing demand. Yeah, We've changed the household sizes. We've gone from massive families to smaller families. Multi- so now, multi-generation to single gen- or to two generations, tops. Yeah, or like um, the family, yeah, seven kids to down like, say, two kids. Yeah. So now you have to... Again, fit. that impacts the population growth as well. Yeah. Well, you, you build smaller houses, but yeah. many houses. Mm. That's where our apartment blocks come from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it says on supply and demand, so I'll quote from here. It says, one important factor for housing price growth is the ability of the supply of new dwelling to respond to changes in demand. Mm. The significance of this is made clear by the recent increases in higher density housing and lower growth of these prices relative to the prices of detached housing whose supply has been less responsive. Right? So it says that, some of the types of housing we're producing so there's more demand for high density housing um, whereas detached houses single you know that you're not joined to another neighbor um, those supplies have not been catching up yeah so immigration is a big factor and the housing market needs to adapt to changing high households so mm. perhaps look at high z- high density residential areas yeah so I, I thought it was interesting like mm. it's not just well I greed Yes, well, well, high density residential, nice on paper. Right now, due to the pandemic, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But let's, let's build a let's build a building and build lots of little tiny buildings inside of that, and then cram lots and lots of people inside it. Yeah, there's also you know that's not happening anytime soon. But I remember also like say Sydney, um, yep. they had that tower which had a crack in it, and then they had to evacuate oh, yeah. all those people. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and all those people then had to find somewhere to stay because yeah. they weren't allowed to. Stay in the building. Mm. If you're letting more people into the country and people have to, you know, naturally grow in population, yeah. then where do they live? Yeah. <laughs> Tent city? No. Well, that's, that's not a solution. Actually, no, that happened in Sydney, remember? In um, uh, Martin Square, I believe. Just, Is it? Yeah. I don't remember. I do. I think it was the Occupy Climate Change Movement. Was it? And they just built, put tents all oh, around Sydney. Yeah, yeah, I vaguely remember that. So that, was, that was a protest, though, wasn't it? That was a protest. Yeah. And then the police had to kick them out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, it's, but, the same, but, it's, but, it's the same with, with uh, Occupy Wall Street in the in um, New York, in the US, yeah. back in, I think it was 2008? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 
but but the homeless people join onto the movement so they can set up a tent in the middle ah, of London Square. Right. <laughs> Clever. All right. Um, I do want to go into maybe let's look at these factors and try to understand what's causing housing unaffordability. Unaffordability. Okay. So Thomas Sowell, who wrote Basic Economics. I do. Thomas Sowell really, really could could not recommend highly. Yeah. More highly. Really, really. He's written some good books. He's written some good books. And when I've listened to a lot of his stuff on YouTube. Yeah. He's able to explain something that a topic of the topic of economics, which I would consider dry, boring, very academia centric. He's able to explain it that makes it understandable, relatable, and interesting. Yeah, which I would I would say is is a very rare skill. Mm. So anyway, so he starts off with okay, what is uh, economics? What is the market? What is supply and demand? Yeah. So start off with the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden had a system production and distribution, but not an economy because resources were limitless in utopia, right? So it's scarcity free. Yeah. So, yeah. but the reality is that resources are scarce. Yeah. Economics is how to use them and understanding the forces of supply and demand. Fundamental economics is scarce resources and how to best use or economize them, mm. right? So he quotes uh, Lionel Robbins, a British economist, and he says, economics is the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses. So if it's, if it's not being used in that particular market, it might be best allocated and best you know, be efficiently used in another area. So what is the problem with housing? It's got limited supply. It's got very high demand. So he uses the example of buying beachfront homes in a tight market. You know, it can apply to all homes. So he says, many people see prices as simply obstacles to their getting the things they want. Those who would like to live in a beachfront house, for example, may abandon such plans when they discover how extremely expensive beachfront property can be. But high prices are not the reason we cannot all live in beachfront home. On the contrary, the inherent reality is that there are not nearly enough beachfront homes to go around, mm. and prices simply convey the underlying reality. When more people bid for relatively few homes, those homes become very expensive because of supply and demand. Mm. But it is not the prices that cause the scarcity. That would be the same scarcity under feudalism or socialism or in a tribal society. Prices are not just ways of transferring money. Their primary role is to provide financial incentives to affect behavior in the use of resources and their resulting products. Mm. Prices not only guide consumers, they guide producers as well. When all is said and done, producers cannot possibly know what millions of different consumers want. All that automobile... Well, he's using your automobile <laughs> example. He'll probably do it a lot better than me. Yeah, he's, okay. All that automobile manufacturers, for example, know is that when they produce cars with a certain combination of features, they can sell those cars for a price. They cover their production costs and leave them a profit. But when they manufacture cars with a different combination of features, these don't sell as well. In order to get rid of the unsold cars, the sellers must cut the prices to whatever level is necessary to get them off the dealer's lots even that means taking a loss. Mm. The alternative will be taking a bigger loss, but not selling them at all. Yeah. So I like what he says. It, it's not you know the greed of the builders and the sellers that drive the price up. Mm. You know a ridiculous price just hurts the seller because yeah. they can't get rid of it and they make the money sell, back. They can't sell the product that they've invested both time, resources, and money 
into producing in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so, but if people buy at a price, so if they exchange the good at a yeah. price, then it means that it's not ridiculous because because yeah. someone, someone was willing to pay for it. Yeah. The demand yeah. is yeah. happy to meet the supply. Yeah. So. The job of anyone selling anything in the marketplace, their job is to find find the highest price that the market is willing to bear with. Mm. So if I if I have this rock and I charge you ten dollars for the rock, and no one that I talk to with my rock is going to pay ten dollars for it because they can get it for free. Because I can get it for free, exactly. But if someone over there is selling rocks for free, again, well, for no, a second, let's put a money, <laughs> let's put a value on it. Painted rocks. Painted rocks. Painted rocks. There we go. Painted rocks. I painted something on my rock. Yeah, yeah. I've got a painted rock. And I'm charging you $10. But then someone else is selling it for a dollar. And the market then goes, I'm going to value, I value the rock, a painted rock at a dollar. They'll go and buy that. And I'm left with, I'm left with the decision, well, do I keep, do I keep making painted rocks? At $10. At $10. Yeah. At $10. Or do I lower my price to something that the market deems that yes, it is worth what I am charging, then I can sell my rock, mm. and then I have my business. Yeah. Basic, basic market fundamentals. There yeah. you go. And so he says, you know, prices reflect a reality in the housing scarcity and the forces of the supply and demand. So yeah. it's not you as a greedy rock seller. It's yes. just the nature that hey, you know, rocks are abundant. Yes, um, you know, painted rocks might be. But so I'm not going to you know spend uh, spend a million dollars on them because yeah. you know I just really want them for my garden. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. someone else can paint yeah. it, and then I value that labor cost as yes, you know, a exactly. dollar. What I, what I was missing, what I was missing was the labor that goes into. Yeah. I'm just going to pick up a rock and I'm going to sell it. No, that's not how that works. <sighs> anyway, no, that's yeah, basic market fundamentals. So I guess what is the solution there? If the housing prices are high, mm. can we do something to fix it? That's the temptation. That yeah, I think people well, are trying to. Can we can we fix the housing market? Is there something broken? Yeah, that we can try to fix it. Is the system broken? Do we does it? Can we? We've got a problem. Let's try to find a solution. But I think that this is a a classic case of we're misdiagnosing something that is working fine, but we're we're diagnosing it and presenting the wrong solution. Yeah. So one idea is government intervention. Yeah. Right? And it's not solely an Australian idea. It's mm. been tried out. Well, in a few countries. Yeah. UK, America, just to name two. And I guess for Australians in particular, we have the thing called a first homeowner grant. Mm. I think what it is, is basically price control, right? Yeah. So you're making everyone who's demanding this have more availability of credit yeah. because now they get this grant from the government to buy their first home. Yeah. And uh, I tried to look at it like, is that actually helping or not helping? And I've, I've come up across this uh, Deakin paper, yeah. uh, Univer- Deakin University paper from 2012. The First Home Buyer Grant, House Prices in Australia by David Blight, Michael Field, and Ida Henrique. And this is what it says. So in July 2000, to offset the cost of the GST in houses after the introduction of the Australian's new tax system, ANTS, the Commonwealth Government, through the state governments, introduced our first home buyer's grant, FHPG, of $7,000 in the form of a cash grant. This grant was given to those entering the housing market for the first time and was not means or income tested. So it was just given to you, right? As a lump sum. Uh, regardless of how much wealth you, you have already. 
So you can be a millionaire and still get seven thousand yeah. dollars. Uh, the first home buyers grant was designed to assist the entry of first home buyers in the housing market, counter effects of the GST, and to maintain activity in a sector. This grant did not discriminate between new nor existing homes, suggesting it was aimed more at st- stabilizing the housing market than driving new construction. Between March and December 2001, additional grant of $7,000 was introduced for new home sales. Additional grant was reduced to $3,000 from December 2001 to June 2002, and the total grant reduced to the original $7,000. During the global financial crisis and part of the Rudd government's stimulus package, the first home buyer's grant was boosted by $7,000 from July 2008 to $14,000 for an existing home and increased to $21,000 for a new home. This new boost remained in place until the end of 2009 when the FHBG and boosts were reduced to $10,500 for existing homes and $14,000 for a new home. These additional boosts in FHBGs ended in January 2010 and remained at $7,000 until 30th of June 2012. In addition to these FHPGs, there were a plethora of state grants, concessions on stamp duties for new houses, additional grants for regional home construction and reduction of some statutory charges on construction and development were given to new home buyers. You know, that's quite a lot of money, mm. right? To stimulate the market, help out new people buying homes. Yeah, it's artificially creating stability and reliability, yeah. but there's a cost to that. I like the other bit. It says counter effects of the GST. It's like, well, who who put that GST what, there in the well, first place? To, ca- to counter effect the GF the, the GFC, what caused the GFC to begin with? No, sorry, counter oh. effects of the GST. Oh, GST. Sorry, pardon. Goods and services tax. GST. Misheard you there. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, where did the GST come from? Last time <laughs> I checked, it was. Hang on, federal government tax. Yeah. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll continue with yeah. uh, grants, uh, the yeah. history of grants. So the housing industry defends the grant that, that without these packages, not only would families not be able to afford housing, but the supply of housing will reduce, restricting supply, in effect, pushing housing out of reach of many Australians. The real estate of the Institute of Australia suggests that a chronic undersupply of housing and these grants stimulate demand to increase supply. In addition, the loss of jobs in a sector would have a long-term effect on the cost and supply of housing from a reduced labour force with the loss of industry skills. By the same token, academics such as Professor Stephen Keane simply suggest that the FHBGs are simply first vendors' bonus schemes and have only added to demand in a market that has an effective inelastic supply given it takes up to 12 months to have a new home on the market and therefore have driven prices up. The interest, therefore, is if the government policy to assist first-home buyers but has the policy only increased the price of houses, our hypothesis is that these grants did directly and indirectly push up Australian median house price. The alternate hypothesis is that the first-home buyers grant did not directly or indirectly affect house prices. This hypothesis will hold if there is no correlation to the First home buyers grant to house prices and other factors are the main drivers for increased house prices, such as an increased migration and economic growth. So they did a, a graph of a graph index. Of, so the real house price index versus when these programs were introduced. Yep. And 
you know, there's a there's a huge spike in 1988, and then in 2000 it spikes again, and 2008, you know, GFC and what I mentioned about the right government, it spikes yep. even higher. It never really comes down, really. But they timed it. Say, hey, every time there's an introduction to these programs, yeah, there's a dramatic spike. Yes. So it's and looking at this graph, it is climbing over the years, which is to be expected. That's natural inflation. Yeah. We're talking here about in, uh, artificial inflation. Yes. And we're now seeing this, the results of this decades on. Yeah. So the index is about compared to 1980, 1980s prices. Yeah. Which is around 120, 130,000. Yeah. Yep. And then it's increased, say, oh. in 2010. Yep. Uh, you know, like 20 years uh, on. Sorry, 30 years on, 2010, 230 times yep. what it would cost back in the 80s. Yeah. So we're talking about Gen X, I'd say, uh, late 1980s. Mm. And they bought a house for 130. Yeah, 20, 20 years down the road, that pri- that house that they bought for 130, suddenly it is now 230, 240. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, and while that is, that is absolutely great when you, when they want to sell it, right? When they yeah. want to sell it. Yes. But the problem though is that the way that you've gotten to that point is by artificial inflation. Mm. It's by government interference. It's it stepped in and interfered with the natural progression of the free market, and it's now it's now exacerbating the problem because we're now outpricing people. Uh, it's not possible for them to afford uh, three hundred. Is it three hundred thirty? Did I get that right? Mm. Or two hundred thirty? Two hundred thirty. I, I, I am adding an extra hundred thousand uh, magically out of the air. Yeah. No, two hundred thirty thousand. Yeah, so that's one data point, yeah. right? So, so prices again, versus uh, when these programs by the government were introduced. Yeah. And it's just, you know, causing price increase. Yeah. The other bit is supply and demand. So mm. they say that um, if you... Uh, and it's important so to check, compare multiple data points. Because what, what's the old expression? Uh, it's uh, correlation doesn't imply causation. So just because you can see a connection, a relationship between, say, you know, shark attacks and ice cream sales, yes. uh, it doesn't, doesn't, mean, doesn't it. mean that it causes, there must be a third factor in there, yes. which is temperature. Yes. You know, like, no, shark, the more ice cream you sell, the more shark attacks there are. It's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> and government goes, ban all the sharks. No? Where? where uh, <laughs> uh, um, so the other bit is, so yeah. these this money, this uh, program is going to stimulate new housing production. So yeah. we're going to build more houses because there's more demand. So then the suppliers will try to meet it. And therefore, we're going to build more houses to meet this. So that will yeah. solve the issue. Yeah. So it says here, supply of housing is ineffectively inelastic in the short and medium term. The HIA stated in 2009 that loans for new houses increased by 66% in the period March to December 2001 and the permits from local government for new home construction grew at a rate of 20%, so not enough, right? So 20% versus 66%. The rate of growth in the first home buyer's grant loans ratio to new permits to build to the growth in loan applications clearly show an increase in the demand side with a lower corresponding increase in supply mm. in new house construction. This excess demand for housing went into existing homes as first home buyers 
needed to purchase within a set time to qualify for the grant, effectively pushing up the housing price again. More interference. Yeah, so you, you, you're, not, you're not creating more houses. It just makes the existing houses more expensive. Yeah. Just recently, in the last year or two, we've done that again with the new home builders grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Morrison government's done the same thing again. Yeah. So what is that? Oh, uh, the new home builders. I think it's uh, I think it's an extra twenty. I'll have to look it up actually. So if you actually build you a new, if you build, build a home. new, if you build a new home, the government will give you money. <laughs> so they're, they're using the, they're doing the same thing over again. I'll just look it up and just confirm my facts with that. But yeah. exactly, it'll, what it'll, it'll be good to know. Did it actually create more homes? Well, at this point, it's too early to tell because it's a new policy, and it's been it's been taken up by people. Uh, I, th- I think there was a report that it wasn't taken up enough to make it to make it to achieve the goal that they wanted. But this this will this will take years to see what the impact of this next level of government interference is actually going to cause. But the other bit is also maybe there's government rules to say you can't build a house this high, you can't build it according to yes. the land that you you purchase. Yeah. Uh, you have to have a minimum lot, you have to have yeah. some environmental protection laws and therefore that drives the price up and then you can't afford it. No, I can't can't seem to find can't seem to find that info, but that's okay. All right, so um, I'll go back to the paper again yeah. it says, all right. How much did it affect house prices? Mm-hmm. So how much did it affect house prices? So they use OLS regression as a technique, the you know statistical technique to okay. determine the house the, the relationship between house prices and the first home buyer's grant. And took uh, the medium house price data from seven, September nineteen ninety six to December two thousand eleven was used together with dummy variable for per- periods where the first home buyer's grant was operating. So, for our previous figures analysis, there is evidence to suggest the FHBG did affect the price of housing in Australia. What is harder to conclude is by how much. Regression analysis suggests that in periods when a grant was in operation, the price of a house increased by $57,321, as shown in table one below. So, Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So, how much was the grant? It was like, what, $10,000, $10,500? Yeah. Uh, fifteen thousand dollars as peak, but what did it affect on the actual price of the house? Fifty-seven thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah, uh, that's way more than uh, what you've given me. Yeah. Uh, conclusion: Is it effective government policy? This is what the paper goes. Uh, mm-hmm. We conclude from the above analysis is that the first home buyers grant had a direct and indirect effect on medium house prices. Uh, the grant has, on each current or boost, resulted in an increase in the medium house price over the period from 2000 to 2010, and we conclude that during this period, the first home buyer's grant has increased the house price by approximately $57,321. This conclusion is reached through the following points. There is a positive correlation between the granting of the first home buyer's grant and the increase in the house price. There is a positive correlation between the first home buyer's grant and the growth in finance for first home buyers and amount finance. The first home buyer's grant in this instant increased finance into the housing industry in both terms of number of loans and amount financed by first home buyers. Uh, so the supply of new and existing housing is effectively inelastic. Therefore, demand increases would increase price by a large proportion. The current median house price for housing in Australia, according to HIA, is $360,000. This research suggests that the FHBG has increased house prices by 
It could be argued that the FHBG has been effective in driving home sales and construction to meet that demand. However, if the success or the effectiveness of the policy is to assist new home buyers into the market, this policy may have resulted in the opposite effect. Many buyers are now not able to afford to buy as the $7,000 grant has effectively increased the house price by $57,000 and left many out of the market. There are plenty of commentators in the market, including Professor Stephen Keane, who suggest that this has created a bubble in the housing market and will result in negative equity when the first-time buyer's grant and associated schemes come to an end. $7,000, you know, will give you $7,000 to help you out. Mm-hmm. It's priced up the house from $360,000 to uh, $570,000. <laughs> It has a very disproportionate effect on the price of housing. There's another article, but if you have your own time, Housing Implications of Economic, Social and Spatial Changes, September 2010, by Flood Baker from the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute to talk about first home owners grant. You know, they're not means tested. It can actually be a, a, a trap, which can cause rising house prices, especially and this has a effect in low-cost locations in Sydney and Melbourne, and it's been not successful among the age brackets of 25 to 44 years old. So, you know, we try to fix the price, but because we didn't understand the problem, it, it wasn't the, pr- the problem wasn't the price. It, the, pr- the problem was scarcity. And what we've done by helping other people give money to them was make the problem the whole problem worse. Uh, it was designed to counteract effects of housing tax, but that's like you know solving a taxation problem that you introduce, right? So, uh, as prices increase, then the tax purport, you know proportion to that increases, and we'll we'll help you out with that bit. But is that more of a band aid solution, right? You're not fixing the core of the problem. Yeah, the band aid solution of this grant has price the intended audience of low-income people out of buying a house so this is a is this a robin hood scheme right because because this thing is not means tested so who can get it the rich the rich can have seven thousand dollars oh yeah of course. assistance Easy. to yeah. that um, it's uh you know people are attracted to expensive cities and city mobile so you know perhaps maybe is there some kind of rule that affects you know, building the houses, so maybe perhaps looking at high density housing uh, to fix that uh, inelastic supply. And you know, there's also assumptions that you know li- you'll live in a mansion forever. But you know, when as you you know change your life situation, you might you know increase in size of your house, or you or you decrease in size of the house. Right, your family life situation changes. So you know, there's there's assumption that you know these homeowners are greedy; they just want their price to increase, but but that, that's, that's the classic debate of the haves versus the have-nots, which isn't actually going to get us to a solution. Mm. When we try to fix this crisis, this housing yeah. affordability crisis, um, it, it, sometimes the cure is worse than the problem. Yeah. Like, like, I think we've, we've discovered that this evening, yeah. that that's exactly what's happened. And what I've noticed is that you know this sort of stuff doesn't just apply to houses. You can I think you can also apply to university with yep. the cost of you know tertiary yep. education, healthcare, yep. childcare, um, subsidizing these goods and services. Yeah. Eventually, over the time, 
these regulations evolve uh, into the poor people subsidizing the rich. Yeah. Right. If we look at you know if people are being priced out of the house, but these these uh these regulations these laws were were just given to everyone. Yeah. Then who's benefiting the rich because they got seven thousand yeah. dollars you know, to help pay yeah. for the housing. Yeah. So intervention fixes things perhaps in the short run, but they can probably hinder things in the long term. Yeah. Are we actually looking at the problem in the right way? Yeah. Well, I think what's happening is that we're, we're, we're identifying a problem and we're trying to solve it with government regulation to try and, co- we'll call it, air quote, correct a, fluctuating, a fluctuation in the market. But we then exacerbate the problem and what we end up with is a, a bigger problem that we're trying to solve and our solution is, oh, we need more government regulation to step in to again correct the problem. Yeah. We've actually seen that happen over the last 20, 30, 30, 40 years of the government stepping in to, inter, to interfere with the market operating on its own. And they end up with $100,000, $200,000 tapped onto the price of houses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, what's your takeaway points, man? Probably got two takeaway points. One, one talking. I guess one talking more about government regulation, and then another talking about well, what do we do? Because it's all. I think it's all well and good to talk about the the principle and the and where how we got to this problem, but I think there's also a takeaway of what can we do to get out of it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. what can you do is a very good thing. Like, I want people to fix it. Yeah, but um, it's not. But I guess where how do we fix it? That's yeah. the, that's the key because. Government regulation is in tension with the free market operating as it is. But the problem is that if you have the free market operating on its own unregulated, it leads to greed. It leads to abuse of people taking advantage of, uh, of that freedom. That's just that's human nature. But when the government regulation steps in, it then introduces a level of control to try and control the, the excesses of human greed of what is the, what is the market. But that control then creates an artificial bubble, doesn't it? And that bubble then, I, I think at least, then leads to government corruption, abuse, and more, and exa- it's exacerbating existing problems, but it's also creating more greed. So you end up with either greed via the government or greed via the free market. And we've just seen that the government's interfered over decades, artificially trying to create stability in a fluctuating marketplace. We're seeing generations later the ramifications of those decisions being felt, and now we're now we're seeing today going well. We've got a massive problem. How do we fix the problem? We're going to use more government regulation. I can't I can't see the logic in that. What they talked earlier on about the millionaires, you aren't able to buy a house because you're spending too much money on avocado yeah. sandwich, right? Uh, avocado toast. Yeah. Uh, even if you do save that money, right? Some other external factor is playing in the market yeah. that has priced whatever you saved out of your reach. And so even though you ask for a grant of $7,000, yeah. that grant pushes everything in the, in the market, the up. price, up way more than you can even yeah. afford so, to get. And, and why does that happen? Because the government is acting as a bank, essentially, as a, as a, a bank of free money. And they're saying, well, we'll give you $20,000. Cool. Thank you very much, government. Then the but everyone gets a twenty thousand. Everyone, yes, everyone, both rich, poor, whatever, right? Right. 
But the problem, though, is that then, as per human human propensity for greed, or the desire to to accumulate more capital, the banks and well, essentially the banks, the real estate agencies, more the banks than anything else, really. They're then looking, well, there's $20,000 sitting on the table over there. Why am I leaving? I'd be stupid to leave that alone. Because if, if I leave it alone, my competitor, who is, racing, who is racing with me to try and earn more money, more capital, they're going to take it. So it's, it's essentially then, it's a race to the bottom. So, um, you know, the tendency to say, oh, banks are greedy. But oh, it's, it's, not, it, it's not that banks are greedy, they're the only problem. It's a, that's how capitalism works is that it harnesses human human propensity for greed uh, to make that productive yeah but if housing we're not building enough houses right yeah. say because of say some red tape in That's right. your local council yep. that says you can't build this many high or build yeah. have minimum lots right? it's, so, it's, it's so, trying to keep so supply is inelastic yes but everyone now has twenty thousand dollars to compete in the market That's right so when you bid right mm. That twenty thousand dollars, well, that's neutralized by because, because other people have twenty thousand. So I've got, a, I've got, I've got, I've got fifty thousand dollars saved up. I get an extra twenty. Cool. Yeah. Now I have. Set, I'm doing maths in my head. This is dangerous, but <laughs> I've got seventy thousand dollars now. Yeah. Uh, John Smith over there across the street, he's got eighty thousand dollars. He gets his twenty thousand dollars. Now he's got a hundred thousand dollars. You're right. I'm priced out. There's no way for me to outbid him. Doesn't work. And so the good scheme or the good intention scheme yeah. that was put in there by the government, right? Yeah. To give everyone $20,000 yeah. has actually hurt you it, it as has, the yeah. intended audience yes. of this crime. Yeah. Uh, What's the other point there? Well, well, the other, well, the other point I had is, okay, so what, what do we do? Because we've got this problem now and it doesn't seem logical to me to try and fix a problem caused by government regulation with more government regulation, right? <laughs> That's not logical. So, what? But what, what do we do? We've still got a problem to solve. Yeah, I think that what we need to do as young people is is that where we have aspirations, we have goals, and I think that it's it's a, it's a great goal that we have as a generation. Going, we want to own our own home. We don't want to be in the rental rental rat race. That's great, but we need. I think we need to lower our our aspirations to be in line with what's attainable right now because again we have a problem we need to try and overcome that problem possibly so that the gen- that the next generation can have it better which has been which has been the driving factor for generation after generation wanting to att- wanting to attain better or more for the next but if i can link those two points together yeah sure that is you know government programs as yeah. well as what can we do right yeah. as young people sure is that be very aware of when some promises in yeah. election time. Yeah. Hey, I will help you fix this housing market. No thanks. I will give you money. I will maybe you know, or yeah. my student loans. Yeah. I can. I'll wipe your debt out. What's yeah. going to happen? Stop. No, thank you. Stop interfering. Leave yeah. me alone. Leave the leave the market alone. Again, and that's not saying take all regulation and throw it in the bin because. If you leave the market completely free and un- unregulated, yeah. you then you then it, le- it leads itself open to abuse and greed. So but it's this keeping the two intention. That person, right, yeah. giving you these promises. Yeah, like we've seen how complex the market is. There's yeah. no way that that person can come up with a solution that is one size fits no, all. Of course not. Of course not. 
But what, but often what the solution, this their proposal is to this to solve the problem is they take a uh, commodity governed by the rules of scarcity, and they say you're entitled to it. It's a right. Yeah. You have a right to housing. You have a right to healthcare. You have a right to internet. You have a right to all these different things. No, no, no. Those aren't rights. Those are commodities. You yeah. don't. You aren't entitled to them. These are luxuries. They are nice to have, and we should try to make them attainable for more and more people we should work towards that goal Mm. but you can't just magically wave a wand and say that's a right you are entitled to it because that's not how the world the world can't can't operate that way it'll be chaos yeah that's it no probably my only other closing thought again about what do we do today with our generation how do we get out of this mess is we have got a aspiration a goal we want to attain but to attain that goal, it's I think it's going to take it's going to take hard work. It's going to be a struggle. It's a sacrifice, or sacrifice that we have to make. So, as an example, we we started this episode talking about avocado on toast. I think is a bit of more of a bit of a more humorous example of some of the excesses that we do, how we spend our money. Spend, spend, spend. Spend, spend, spend. <laughs> it's the phrase I want. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, it's a new jingle. But <laughs> we need to take a serious, hard look at what we're spending our money on, how we're spending it, and we focus it so that if we have a goal of, I want to be able to own my own home, we need that. that's going to take sacrifice and hard work to be able to achieving it. There's another addendum here, or another problem, where we don't have the skills. We haven't been taught the skills of how to budget, how to use finances appropriately. So if we haven't been, if we haven't been taught the skill appro- properly, we need to teach ourselves. We need to learn. Yeah. And that's going, and that itself is going to take more practice, time, dedication to master that skill. Mm-hmm. And then also, if we can learn that skill, we can then pass, we can teach others, we can pass that on. And I think if we start doing that, if we start working, set, focusing our energies on that, there's a, there's a chance that we might be able to start turning this around. So more self-reliance rather yeah, than rather reliance rather than, rely, rather than relying on the government to step in and fix the problem. Because I think we've just we've just established in this conversation, the government's not really good at doing that. Well, no one is smart enough to fix the problem. No, and if and if, and if someone is saying I am wise enough, they're <laughs> foolish. Yeah. That was my closing thoughts. All right. Well, uh, I think we can end it off there. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. When we hear the millionaire's advice that we just stop indulging ourselves on daily avocado toast, then we can afford to buy a house. It sounds like someone out of touch with the lower class who sees a giant uphill battle just to make the down payment. On the other hand, we've seen that external forces through government intervention originally intended to help the lower to middle class people afford a house has actually priced them out of the market. That credit is extended to everybody. As discussed, the grant caused a rise in the price that exceeds that grant. At the same time, the movement makes an assumption that every individual is granted a right to own a house. Is housing a human right? Or is it something people should earn? If it's a right, 
who grants us that right? Housing restriction laws make artificial adjustments to supply because builders are unable to build according to market demand. The underlying assumptions made is that housing affordability crisis is caused by high prices. Therefore, the solution is to provide new home buyers with government handouts to increase their purchasing power. However, this is not the case since the studies show that first home owners' grants increase home prices, therefore keeping the intended people out of the market whilst the taxpayer subsidy benefits the rich. Instead, other areas were overlooked, such as the effects of government regulation on building of houses and environmental protection laws, which artificially restrict the supply of houses. A sudden surge in population from migration made houses more competitive to bid, and deregulation of lending practices meant all people could borrow in credit to bid for houses that would be out of their reach. It is tempting to create a political crusade to solve the housing affordability crisis, but is it a crisis? And when things go out of control with soaring housing prices, how are the politicians kept accountable? The more we try to control things, the more things slip out of our hands. We should be skeptical when asking people who are not experts in the field to design laws to artificially constrain the market. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of The Fire in the Desert, conversations about life, society and culture. You can reach us at Twitter at The Fire in the Desert. Please like, subscribe and share this episode with other people. It helps motivate me to make more episodes. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kevin McLeod at incomtech.com. And we'll see you guys next time.